On the Way Home is proudly supported by Ellis Dong Community Builders, a group formed within the Ellis Dong group of companies to assist those who wish to deliver affordable and sustainable housing by providing development management services and leveraging Ellis Dong's turnkey cradle-to-grave project capabilities. We incorporate all that a world-leading development, construction, and building services company has to offer to provide innovative and sustainable developments that connect and energize communities. Our offering is not simply a development and construction solution. It's a holistic and comprehensive approach that ensures the delivery of assets that communities can be proud of. To learn more, please visit www.communitybuilders.ellisdon.com. We at On The Way Home would like to acknowledge the original stewards of whose lands this podcast is recorded on. In York Region, we recognize we're on the traditional territories of the Wendat, the Haudenosaunee, and the Anishinaabe peoples, and that this is the treaty lands of the Mississaugas of the Credit. And in Vancouver, we acknowledge that we are on the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, the Musqueam, Squahomish, and Tsleil-Waututh, whose presence on these lands continue to this day. Welcome to another episode of On The Way Home. I am one of your hosts, Michael Braithwaite, and as always, I am joined by the fabulous Stefania. Stefania, how are you? I'm good, Michael. Thank you for asking. How are you doing these days? I am good. I'm excited because yesterday um, I heard a big announcement mm-hmm. that you were a part of. Can you tell us a little bit more about this exciting news? Yes. Um, So for the last month or a few weeks, it happened very, very quickly as far as getting the announcement out. But Medicine Hat, after working on and focusing on and dedicating themselves to um, ending chronic homelessness in their community and just working on housing people quickly and setting up a system that where folks, if they do fall into homelessness, it's rare, brief and non-recurring. And yesterday, the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness confirmed that Medicine Hat reached functional zero chronic homelessness, which is a huge and incredible difficult, rigorous process um, that takes months and months to get um, uh, confirmed. But basically what that means, functional zero is a relatively new concept in the homelessness sector. It's based off a model that we emulate here called built for the built for zero model in the States. And we have built for zero Canada up here. And what we have done is uh, they have proven in their system um, that over a three month, three consecutive months, three people on their by name list or fewer um, are uh, experiencing chronic homelessness. Uh, And Medicine Hat has set up an incredible coordinated system using Housing First, um, using like, I love Jamie Rogers, who from that community who says that they very more often than not burn it down and build it back up. They are in a constant state of improvement and change um, so that they can deliver to the individual, the individual needs, meet them where they're at and connect them to services, support and uh, permanent housing. So yeah, sorry, not to go on and on, but it was very, very exciting um, that Medicine Hat is Canada's first city uh, in the history of Canada to uh, finally bring uh, an end to chronic homelessness and just proving that they have a system where folks are met where they're at and um, their experience of homelessness is brief. 
Uh, it's amazing. Yeah. And we, we, we quite often get asked, right, in the mm -hmm. sector, like, you know, can you really do it? Like, is that really possible? Or, you know, I, I know reduction is great, but can you actually mm -hmm. end? And I think, if, you know, what this tells us, it can be done with, a, with hard work, with, as you said, with a continuous change and improvement and being flexible. Uh, they've proven medicine hat that you can do this. And so I think it's very inspirational for the rest of the country, if uh, not North America and, and the world. Yeah, and I think what's amazing is Medicine Hat has been doing this since 2009. Um, so before there were any national standards or any national definitions of chronic homelessness or what it means to end homelessness. And, and these things are still evolving. And really, like, even though Medicine Hat has has made this achievement, there are still people who are going to experience homelessness or fall into it because we haven't necessarily upended the causes of homelessness or the pipelines into homelessness. But by proving that we can build a system that answers and responds to that need um, for the people who are experiencing it today, we can start to really focus um, in on prevention and stopping it and making the necessary uh, you know, decolonizing changes so that we actually uh, prevent and end homelessness for all. But what's really special about what Medicine Hat has done with chronic in particular, because chronic um, includes folks who are experiencing homelessness, like women, indigenous folks, um, people in the LGBTQ community. So you're kind of getting a cross section um, of folks that fall into chronic. So you're starting to learn what it looks like um, for a different population, unique populations and, and building your system around that as well, because you're meeting individual need. Um, yeah, it's just really special. We're really, really excited. But uh, and I'm also really, really excited um, to introduce our guest today who can really talk to us more meaningfully about uh, homelessness prevention and ending it and specifically the criminalization of people experiencing it as well. So yeah, I'm super excited to introduce our guest. Ooh, tell, so listen, <laughs> I mean, we just talked about some brilliant minds doing some brilliant work and mm -hmm. uh, I know this guest uh, fits right into that category. So tell us about today's guest. Yes, so I am pleased to introduce in Erin Day. Uh, is She's an assistant professor in the Department of Criminology at Wilfrid Laurier University. She's a critical criminologist who has been doing research on homelessness for over a decade, focusing on how to create meaningful inclusion for people who have experienced homelessness with the ultimate aim of preventing and ending homelessness in Canada. And recently, she published her first book, and hopefully not her last, uh, A Complex Exile, Homelessness and Social Exclusion in Canada. Erin, a huge welcome on the show today. Thank you so much. I'm a longtime listener, first time caller. So <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is very exciting for me to get to be a part of this. Yeah, well, thank you so much. And I think, you know, Michael and I uh, both have noted that we're just so excited to have you on. And, um, you know, we're wondering if we can begin by kind of having you walk us through your journey and how you arrived at the cause to prevent and end homelessness, considering, you know, where you started uh, early on in your career. It's yeah, I mean, I, I was born, you know, on a windy day, you know, no, um, but I, you know, I came to this work as a researcher. So I was, you know, doing grad school and doing my work. Um, and I think that being a researcher has a lot of value, but it, it's funny that just with the timing of how things worked out, I've actually never done research while not also somehow engaging in some kind of advocacy. And so that's looked different over the years. I've done different things. Uh, I'm from Ottawa. Uh, born and raised in Ottawa. And so uh, for about a decade, I was 
in the community there. I was spending lots of time and, and sharing space with folks who are homeless. Uh, and I was also doing different things with the Alliance to End Homelessness Ottawa. So I, I ran a blog called Ask Me Ottawa. And that, the point of that blog was to interview people who were part of the sector and really break down the myths about homelessness uh, in Ottawa specifically. Uh, so, but yeah, so, uh, you know, as I was beginning my research career, I was really being guided and mentored by different community builders and lived experts about why this research I was doing, you know, in the university, why it mattered and um, what we need to do to make big changes. And so it's always been very clear to me that I have an obligation as a researcher to make sure that my work doesn't you know, sit on a shelf, which is you know, one of my biggest fears, um, and, and that the research is really in service to this bigger goal of preventing and ending homelessness in Canada. So that, that's how I started. And then I later had the chance to be a, a postdoctoral researcher at the Canadian Observatory on Homelessness, which was truly life-changing for me personally and um, professionally because it, it gave me this opportunity to zoom out and to understand what's happening at the national level, which was something that I hadn't been able to quite capture before. And um, so I also got to meet really cool people doing all sorts of innovative work uh, across the sector and across Canada and learn about the different ways uh, people are taking on this issue of ending homelessness. So, and then, and then actually at the uh, observatory was where I, um, learned about and, and started to really dig deep on homelessness prevention. And that's really shaped in a big way um, what I do. And so, uh, and then a couple of years ago, I moved to Southern Ontario. So I'm in Waterloo Region now, and uh, this has been a new adventure. So I'm learning about a new community and a new way of doing things. And I'm now, you know, working my way through how do I contribute to these efforts to prevent and end homelessness locally here in Waterloo Region and then, and then still nationally. And you've done all that at the same time you have become a published author. Um, Steph mentioned this in your intro. You recently recently published a book, uh, Baking Bread in a Pan. I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> published a book, uh, Complex Exile, Homelessness and Social Inclusion in Canada. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how that came about? Yeah, if I was going to write a book about bread, it would be why didn't it rise and why is it burnt? It would be my... <laughs> my pandemic experience of making bread. Uh, but no, the book I did write, um, which, which is uh, A Complex Exile. Yeah, it's really exciting. It was a labor of love to be sure. Um, but the work comes out of the PhD research I did where I looked at experiences of homelessness, our responses to homelessness, uh, and mental health care. And, and then all the learnings I had had since, again, at that national scope. So it was really combining uh, a few things I had done over the time that, um, you know, originally wasn't intentional, but I keep getting drawn back into these questions about and my deep concerns and, and worries about people's exclusion and the sort of myriad ways that we are turning people away um, left, right, and center. And so um, I just keep finding my way back to those questions. And so that, that's really what the book is about. Uh, and that's that's great. Um, so can we talk about some of the key messages that derive from your book and your work? And, and one that, that I really wanted to pluck out was, you know, the impact that excluding people experiencing homelessness can have on them, as well as the solutions necessary to end it. 
Yes, I would love the opportunity to to talk about this uh, yeah, because actually that is one of the you know I think there's three messages that I hope resonate with people um, when they read the book, and the first is exactly what you just pointed out. So I, I actually struggle today, even now after writing the book and doing all this work, to put into words uh, how deeply people who are homeless feel and and take on this exclusion that they face. People talk to me a lot about this deep level of shame that they felt for being homeless. And it was so difficult to bear witness to because it's like, we should be ashamed. You know, we as a society created and allowed the policies and the conditions for homelessness to reach this, this epidemic proportion that we have. And as a society, we tolerate this level of human suffering so we, and I use this collective, we, I know there's lots of amazing people listening to this who do great work, but at, but as a, at a social level, we are the ones I, you know, who should be ashamed. Um, but it's people who are homeless who take on that burden. And so people would talk with me about how they withdraw from their friends, from their family. And more uh, concerning even to me was just withdraw from the world around them at all, knowing that if I venture out, if I um, simply be outside and be in public spaces, I could get ticketed, I could get harassed, I could experience violence. And so I'm not going to go outside. I'm not going to, you know, um, move around my community, you know, at all is, is how some people reacted to it. And then um, the immense responsibility that people shoulder for the circumstances that they in. So despite us knowing about all these conditions that created this uh, experience of homelessness on such a large scale in Canada, people, the folks that I spoke to really held that to themselves and really took it all on themselves. And what a, what a load to carry on your shoulders to, to uh, think that this is all on you for, for what you're experiencing. And, you know, and then other people's talked about how they create a kind of second skin. And so there, there was different words people used, but really a second skin is a way to survive as a defense mechanism to protect themselves from the world around them. And so what does that do? You know, a few of them talked about how like they don't even, they can't even take off that second skin now. Or, you know, one person referred to it as a coat that they put, you know, a, not a real coat, a, a metaphorical coat they put on every day to protect themselves and have a, uh, don't even know how to take that coat off anymore because they have to live it all the time. So what can we do as a sector to support? Like, what, what are we not doing? What more can we do more of? Yeah, and I think, you know, the first thing, the big takeaway is that we need to focus on social inclusion. That social inclusion won't just happen naturally um, without prioritizing it and investing in it and recognizing its value in all of our efforts to prevent and end homelessness in Canada. And, you know, one of the learnings when, you know, when I think about what can the sector do, one of the learnings I take from Steve Gates and my time at the observatory is that it's the sector can't do this alone, right? There's so much pressure on the sector and the people who work in that sector to fix what are actually these large scale structural issues. And so it's not fair to put it on the sector to say like, you have to fix it all. Um, so part of that work around homelessness prevention, especially is, um, the sorts of work people are doing all across Canada now, which is to say like, what other sectors need to be involved in this? And then, and then reaching out to those other sectors and being like, hey, you know, what's your role in 
preventing and ending homelessness? How do we share resources and how do we share knowledge and how do we break down these silos uh, to make this lasting change? Um, but then, of course, there are things that the sector can do uh, in the meantime while we, you know, work through these bigger issues. And so um, recognizing the caveat that, you know, lots of uh, programs and organizations are really stretched thin and capacity is really low, I do think that prioritizing how we can build in social inclusion is really key here. So, you know, social integration is one of the five key principles of housing first, but the at home chez soi study showed and um, we've seen that 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 social integration part is one of the toughest pieces there and so while lots of housing first programs across canada are just really struggling to find housing for people right like where do we find this affordable housing um, for folks to to live in um, so much of those resources are dedicated to well, how do we put a roof over people's heads that there is less time and energy uh, and investment being able to support that social inclusion piece but actually, if we want that great work that people are doing about finding and maintaining housing for people, if we want that to stick, then social inclusion has to be a part of that. Like we don't want the, the work to, to go awry for nothing. The other thing that um, the sector can do is really think about different ways of, of going about supporting folks. So investing and prioritizing in peer supports and alternative services is really huge for that social inclusion piece. And so I know, again, there's lots of great services uh, across Canada that are really doing this now and really taking it up. So just a shout out to those folks who are doing that incredible work and to the peer supporters, especially who are, are on the front line um, working every day. And so, you know, the shelter that I'm a part of here in Waterloo Region, the peer support worker during COVID has been the game changer in getting people uh, permanent housing um, once, once COVID hit. So, um, you know, peer workers, making sure that the peer workers are supported, are paid at the same rate as other workers, um, have the sort of backing of the organization, it will go a long way to building that social inclusion piece. I love what you're saying around this, the whole inclusion piece. And I think often in the sector, uh, we can only handle so many thoughts at a time. And, and I, I'll say to people, right, we, so Blue Door, my organization, uh, let's say uh, uh, adult male comes into our program. They've now got 25 buddies. They're hanging out daily. They've got food. They've got staff that they sometimes see as parents or caregivers. We put them in housing, which is awesome. So now no one all my friends are gone. No one cares whether I come and go. No one's feeding me. And so that isolation they talk about, right? And so they sabotage housing. <laughs> Two weeks later, they're back with us and we wonder why, right? So we get it wrong. So it's such an important part. It's not just about housing, but it's those supports and wraparounds and, and connection to a community as well. So uh, it's so amazing. Now, there is a question in here somewhere. I, I just wanted to state that because I think it's important that we talk about these things. Uh, you've interviewed a lot of uh, individuals and, and, and exclusion um, was a big part of that, talking to them uh, in your research um, and how they've been treated. How, what are your recommendations around um, how those situations could have been done differently? and how they can be moving forward? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, it's so interesting because one of the things I hope, again, I get out of this book is that um, the tricky thing with exclusion is some ways that people are excluded are quite obvious, right? It's the criminalization of homelessness, evicting encampments, uh, like stories of, of verbal and physical um, assault that people who are homeless 
experience. And, and so those are quite clear um, ways that people are, um, who are homeless are treated as less than and without the dignity that they deserve. But part of what I try to get in this book is also what are the subtle ways that people are being excluded that we might not realize or we might not mean to be excluding people, but that it happens. You know, and so one of the ways, you know, one of the things I would often ask people is like, how do you spend your day? How do you spend your time? And so many of the responses I got were, I just walk. I, I walk all day. And I walk and I walk and I don't stop because there's nowhere for me to stop. And so people would show me their shoes that had, you know, the soles were worn away and there were holes and, um, and, and they, they didn't have anywhere to, that they felt comfortable either, either the spaces didn't exist for them to be during the day. If they, you know, if they, um, during the day had to leave, say the shelter or, um, or spaces that they just weren't comfortable going to for a variety of reasons. Um, even if they had, money to buy a coffee, you know, or whatever at a coffee shop, they would soon be asked to leave, right? I can loiter around a coffee shop buying my like small coffee all day. Nobody asks me to leave, but those folks are asked to leave, you know, regularly. And so, and, and then they feel like they can't stop and rest anywhere in any one public space to say a park or whatever, because they'll be, they'll be forced to move along. And so, um, it's so, um, resonated with me so much this idea that they, I mean, these folks know the city like the back of their hand because they walk it all day long. So they know the city in such an intimate way and yet they're treated as not part of the city and they're treated as not as not amongst those citizens that we care about and we, and we want to build our communities around. So on that large scale, you know, how do we respond to that? The, the response is, you know, and this is obvious, but anyways, giving people housing. So they have somewhere, like they have their own place to be during the day um, and they have, they have their own space. Um, but there's also all sorts of things that policies and programs uh, can do, right? Um, so another thing that came out in this research was in this one shelter, people who were part of um, a substance use treatment program were given priority for pretty much everything for, um, food, for clothing, for everything. And so folks that weren't part of that substance use treatment program really felt ostracized, really felt um, like they were lesser than. And so just being cognizant of the ways that, uh, you know, I'm sure those policies weren't put in place to make other folks feel bad, but what are, how do actually people react to, to those kind of policies? And I take a lot of lessons here from the Indigenous community uh, and the friendship centers um, who have, who have, who create these very welcoming spaces for people and, and these, um, these places where people can just be um, and where they take care of each other. And I think that that model and that intentionality around building spaces for people of all sorts um, to be able to just be is uh, something that I really took away from, from this research. Construct, a social enterprise by Blue Door, provides high-quality residential and commercial construction and property services in the greater Toronto area. More than a business with a heart, Construct is a real solution to preventing and ending homelessness. Through its eight-week paid skills trades training program, complete with wraparound supports and on-the-job work experience, Construct lifts people out of poverty and into opportunity. To hire Construct for your next project, or learn more about Construct's employment program, visit constructgta.ca.
Yeah, I think that's that's so important. Um, the community connection is often overlooked, or it's not um, seen as valuable when we're building these, you know, higher services from a high level. Um, and I think I think that's really great that um, you've made those connections in your research because they're certainly really important uh, if we want to be successful in um, meeting people where they're at. Um, so I just wanted to move us to, so, and obviously still very connected to what we're talking about. But I've heard that you have a project uh, that will appear on the Homeless Hub website in the next bit um, or has already. Today, um, today. Actually, it was today because I was like, I'm sure I read a new, I opened a newsletter this morning and I saw your name. Yeah. Uh, I just didn't have a chance to, to read it yet, but I bookmarked it. Um, so that's wonderful. So let's talk a bit about what came out today uh, involving a community in BC where, I, where I'm based um, that's really to do with breaking down myths and stigma. So yeah, can you tell us a bit about it? Yeah, it's, and it, you know, it, there really is a connection. Again, all my work happens to just seems to naturally go back to this. Um, my colleague, Dr. Jessica Bramo, wrote a blog on the Homeless Health website about it today. And um, she provides a quote at the beginning from one of our participants uh, with lived experience. And the quote is, my survival strategy is to stay unnoticed. Right. So very much about not being a part of this community. But um, so, yeah, so the goal of this research was to look at the misperceptions and myths around homelessness in this one particular uh, BC community and then to create this counter narrative to these myths. And uh, for the sake of confidentiality, we aren't naming the city, but uh, this city was and continues to really struggle with its response to homelessness, like many are. And, and it created quite deep divides and tensions in this community that ultimately leave people who are homeless to be suffering the most from these, these tensions and these back and forth with, with how people think that they should respond. Um, so a couple of things really stuck out to us. The first was the position of this community as a mid-sized city that has this huge impact on how they respond to homelessness. So, you know, much of the research we know about, you know, takes place in these big urban centers, right? Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal. Um, and we are doing some, you know, there are folks doing really great advocacy work around rural homelessness, right? So we have the National Alliance to End Rural and Remote Homelessness. So we under, we're getting better at understanding rural homelessness. But somewhere in the middle are these mid-sized cities. And they don't, they kind of usually get lumped in with the urban, large urban centers, but they don't have the budget or the resources necessarily that these large urban centers have. And so then I think it can be quite frustrating when they are given tools um, and expectations that work in these big cities that might not work with them. And so what we saw in this city, and I've since heard anecdotally is happening in other mid-sized cities throughout Canada, is that they're facing this identity crisis. So they were a small town uh, who over the years grew and diversified and there was a real emphasis from all sorts of folks we spoke to about keeping that small town feel that small like we're you know we just kept hearing we're a small town everybody knows everybody and all that but the reality was that the population had grown they were over you know mid-size is usually 100 to 500,000 people um they were really essentially what had become kind of a commuter town for for another big city and so then this homelessness and this visible homelessness was now part of that community landscape and so this had a big impact on the community's self-conception. Like, who are we as a community if we're not this, this little small town? Um, and so in the report, we outlined nine opportunities for change that we think will resonate with lots of folks. But at the heart of it, I'm not going to go through the nine, but at the heart of it, it's that these mid-sized communities have grown fairly rapidly 
Um, and that their response to homelessness doesn't always have the, the insight or the resources to keep up with how rapidly they're growing. So in this community, for example, there was pretty wide consensus actually amongst, we spoke to people who are homeless and we spoke to community members and things like that. And there was fairly uniform saying housing first doesn't work. Like housing first is a complete failure. And um, what I think that's happening there is that, as we know, Housing First requires that wrapper, the whole swath of wraparound supports. And that just hasn't been built up in that community yet. And, but so then, you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater sort of thing, well, this means that Housing First doesn't work, as opposed to looking at, you know, what's actually going on. And so amongst those nine opportunities for change, we're talking about how, we, how mid-sized communities can leverage provincial, territorial, and federal support to, to really take stock of where the community is at, where their gaps are, and where the, they can be filled. Um, but I also think at its most basic level, it's about having a conversation about how mid-sized cities might be struggling in a unique way and, and that we need to pay attention to. And so luckily, um, the team has grown and we actually um, are starting or year one of um, a new project that takes that same idea from that BC community and we're implementing it in three mid-sized cities in Southern Ontario. And so looking at these misperceptions again. So there's more to come with this. We're gonna have a bigger understanding with more cities to, to see how mid-sized cities are, are really affected by this. Yeah, I'm, I'm so excited to read um, more about that research project because of the communities that I know we're working with at the CAEH. Um, I'm often in conversation with a few now who are working on NIMBYism and how that's really standing in the way um, because it's like, yes, I agree, uh, value aligned as a community member that we should solve homelessness just not close to me because mm -hmm. think of the children. And so much of that is built on these old, outdated, you know, misconceptions, these myths. Unfortunately, that stigma has followed us very much into the now. Um, and I think very much feeds into um, the over policing and the criminalization of people who look like they live on the streets, people who are perceived to be homeless. Maybe they have housing, but maybe still they're loitering or they're just like, they don't seem like they fit with like the per perception people have of what their community is, as, as sort of you were touching on. So bringing it over into that criminalization piece, because I'm so interested in the work you're doing on that as well, and how we can um, fight, because it just leads to the further oppression of people who are marginalized and disenfranchised by society. And then on top of that, we're over-policing them, we're giving them too many tickets, we're throwing them in jail for little to no cause. Um, and you recently taught a course on this very subject. So I'd love to learn more about that course, how can I take it? Um, what does it entail? But yeah, I would just love to talk to you more about the work that you're doing specifically focused on that criminalization piece. Yeah, the class is remote. So you can totally, you can totally go. This is, I guess, what, you know, one of the great things about COVID. And actually, I, there was some, we had amazing guest speakers come in because we're remote. Nobody had to, to travel to Brantford. We had people from John Howard Society and um, the shift and all sorts of people come in and speak to the class. Uh, yeah, no, this was really a, honestly, like a dream come true for me. I've, I've been waiting 10 years to teach a course like this. And with the support of my department, it was voted recently to be a, a regular, like it's gonna be a regular course as opposed to a, a one-time special topics course. So this is, I'm in it now. I get to do this all the time now, which is so, so exciting. Um, 
But so yeah, the course was designed, it really does as a critical criminologist. So as somebody who says, look, we need to pay attention to what the criminal justice system is doing and how it's, um, as you said, furthering like the oppression uh, and marginalization of particular kinds of people. Um, I wanted to take that to homelessness because there's some great folks talking about that intersection of homelessness and criminalization, but, but not a lot. And so that's somewhere where I see I can contribute to, to that conversation. So I designed the course uh, with four sections. And so the first is really about um, who's experiencing homelessness and um, how that looks like um, and how the, both homelessness and the criminal justice system are part of this you know, ongoing colonization project against indigenous people and you know, the disenfranchisement of black people in Canada. So really looking at how the, you know, the criminal justice system is a, a tool of oppression and how homelessness gets you know, wrapped up in so much of that as well. And then the second section of the course is how being homeless leads to criminalization. And so we call this um, the criminalization of acts of living. And so there can be like acts of living offenses where people who have no other place to go to the bathroom, where people have no, like literally no other place to be. So what's constituted as loitering is really just people like being in public spaces um, that, that you can get ticketed. Um, you know, there are some communities who have created bylaws against pushing a shopping cart down the street, right? And, and like, if that's not targeted towards people who are homeless specifically, like, I don't know what else is, right? So very much targeting a lot of our bylaws. Um, it's actually, uh, people don't really notice. I, I just, you know, only recently in the last few years really paid attention to how it's bylaws that are being used as these tools of criminalization in a unique way. Um, and then we have provincial laws. So in Ontario and BC, we have uh, the Safe Streets Act uh, and things like that, that are actually, you know, using the criminal justice system as a tool to respond to homelessness. And we can think about the absurdity of that, right? The absurdity of fining somebody for panhandling. Like, like just like, if we think about that for a second, like somebody doesn't have money, so we're going to charge them money for not having money. Um, it's, it's hilarious if it's not so sad and, and having such a negative impact on people. So that's that section. And then the next section of the course is the flip side of how homelessness leads to criminalization, it's how the being, uh, having criminal justice involvement leads to homelessness. And so we look at um, the poor state of discharge planning, especially in provincial institutions, um, and how having a criminal record acts as this enormous barrier to um, accessing housing, right? So having a criminal record check to be able to access housing virtually you know, eliminates um, people's opportunities to, to find an apartment, to find somewhere to live. And then the last section of the course really goes back to the stuff that I'm uh, love and focused on. And it, it looks at like we don't need prison walls and we don't need, you know, barbed wire fences to um, to criminalize people and to break people off. And so um, it's looking at how we regulate space in certain ways to continue to criminalize people. So we talk about things like encampments, the, how encampments are being ma managed is such a nice word. How people are being evicted um, and moved along from um, encampments um, and really as a loss of their human rights. Um, we look at red zones. So people get um, spaces, parts of the city where they're not allowed to go to and how so many of those parts of the cities are like where their doctor is, where their methadone clinic is, uh, where their mom is, you know, things like that. And so how are we regulating space in certain ways to continue to exclude and cut people off? And so what's really cool about this course is 
you know, from my time at the Canadian Observatory on Homelessness, where I learned, I had a two-year crash course in knowledge mobilization, is I had the students for each of those sections write a blog, a research blog, and then do an infographic. And so thanks to the COH folks, five of those students got their blog and infographics published. And so that their, their research is out there in the world. And I'm so proud of those students, but all of the students in this course. So it was so, so cool and really a highlight of my teaching career up till now. The student has become the teacher. And so much of what you said, Rescue. I mean, I think, Steph, we've got uh, a reoccurring guest because there's so many different themes throughout uh, from that course. And, and, you know, I think about a story from a few years back where um, finally there was uh, a man who experienced homelessness in Toronto that had $64,000 worth of fines. And they, they finally <laughs> threw them out because, as you said, there's no, all you're doing is, is keeping him homeless because there's no way you could ever get a place with that kind of debt uh, on a sheet. And, and you know, and, and re more recently, I think of uh, when uh, in Ontario, when Premier Ford said, hey, you know, uh, we're gonna enforce this pandemic and we're gonna use policing to do that, who it really hurts? Who are the people on the streets that he's talking about to get off the streets and not addressing that, right? So right away, uh, the criminalization um, happened. And, and you know, the good thing is there was massive backlash not all because of that, but because people were saying that's, that's over-policing. So let's talk a little bit about that. What would you like to see or think is necessary to ensure uh, that uh, the individu individuals I'm talking about that are marginalized by uh, society's current structure aren't further oppressed by being over-policed or criminalized? Yeah, just to jump on your other point, you know, it happened in, I mean, the Ontario, they backtracked, but in Quebec, they didn't backtrack for a while. True, so true. they said, um, you know, their curfew, nobody's allowed out after, you know, whatever time it was. And, and they said, like, people who are homeless, there's an, there's enough shelter space, you don't get a, you don't get a veto. And that was ridiculous. And anyways, uh, and it was only, I believe, with a court challenge that that got reversed. So yeah, still lots of work to be done to, to anyways, think about those things. Um, the short answer to your question, Michael, is, um, like defund the police? Like, can I, can I go there? I mean, I don't want to know. I mean, I think that's, um, I think there is part of that. I think that what we need to think about is that we have come to rely on criminal justice actors and criminal justice institutions as one of our responses to homelessness. And just like we are very slowly, but surely getting to the point of realizing that you know, we can't respond to substance use with a criminal justice approach. We need to respond to it with a public health approach. That same thinking needs to take place about homelessness. And so we need to think about, you know, when we are, the idea that we can ticket our way out of homelessness, that, um, that making people, yeah, finding people, you know, we're using, you know, very short jail sentences, like, you know, people are in and out, you know, one week jail sentences, like what is that doing to respond to homelessness, other than disrupting people's lives, potentially losing their housing, if they have children, things like that. So um, we need to take stock of how are we using this, this system and this tool um, inappropriately as a way to respond to homelessness. And, you know, even in that BC community, when we spoke to police officers, uh, you know, they, you know, they said like, we don't, we don't, this isn't what we were trained to do. This isn't what we are meant to do, but it's, it's people who call the police saying, we expect you to do something about this. And um, so, you know, I, I know that that's not true of everybody, but I do think that there's lots of uh, police officers out there who would 
who would agree that this isn't uh, their role and and this isn't their place. And at the end of the day, at the you know, police always have the potential for arrest as as a potential outcome. And so when we think about um, ways of responding to people who are in crisis or people who are struggling, um, when it's somebody who always has that, you know, as a potential, as a, you know, in their back pocket, even if they don't plan on using it, that can really be disruptive and difficult for people to respond to. So I think, you know, as part of this movement that we're having in Canada and around the world, I think we need to recognize um, homelessness sectors place in this and how we can rethink our responses to um, people who are in distress, people who are struggling, people who are in public spaces. And, and let's think about ways we can do that that don't include um, criminal justice involvement. Well, you've got me thinking, right? I mean, obviously when the police come in, they are law enforcement and the enforcement being key. And I think even in the work that, that we do, when uh, we have a client that's agitated that, uh, there's potential for violence, or, or we, we've asked to leave, they don't, our process is called the police, right? And what if we looked at that differently, and there was a different response to that, so we're, we're not having to do that all the time. It's, it's a broader conversation, but it's just a process that we've gotten used to doing that doesn't usually end up with a positive result for, for anyone. The police don't really like responding to all those calls. They're not trained for it. They, they may not have a deep understanding of the clients. You know, could we do that differently? And, and let's, let's hope. Hey, listen, you've been attached to, for years now, I've seen your name attached to some of the most important and best work uh, in the sector. And so thank you for that. And now you have this amazing book, you're teaching the course, you're doing so much. Where can people go to find out more about the work that you're doing and see more of the work that you're doing? A lot of the, thanks to my connection with the COH, a lot of the stuff is, you know, on the Homeless Hub website. So again, the report that we really launched today is, is uh, on the Homeless Hub. Uh, and then I have Twitter, like, I don't know, <laughs> that, I have social media and, uh, and things like that. Um, the book can be found every, everywhere, where, what's that phrase? Everywhere where books are sold or, you know. <laughs> It's everywhere from Amazon to Indigo to from UBC Press. Um, so there's lot, there's lots of ways. Well, that's that's so awesome, Aaron. And you know, like Michael said, we we're just thrilled to have you on the show today. Uh, there's so much that you're working on and that you're doing, and we certainly see your name quite a bit. So thank you again for coming on the show and joining us today. This was a true delight, a highlight of my year. So thank you so so much for having me. Thanks. Wow. Uh, you know, stuff I meant to when I said there's so many different things in there. Mm -hmm. And like all our guests, but especially Aaron, like the passion and uh, energy and, and you just feel it, what she's talking about. I mean, she's, she's probably spent, well, not probably, she spent days and days and days researching, putting all this stuff together, but to still have that when someone asks her, like, I, you know, that almost, I can't wait to tell you. Uh, yeah. feeling which is which yeah. is so cool we we need that in the sector uh we we need that uh not only her research um but the way she goes about it and how she shares it with people it's uh it's, it's fantastic absolutely and as you know michael you know because you're a frontline organization it's it's been a hell of a year and a bit um and burnout is is real and i think we're in it and out of it um 
with a little bit, giving in a little bit more and then burning out again. Um, so I think having that energy and bringing it to the table to talk about these very like serious subjects um, and, you know, it's not a bad word to say defund the police. I think it's a necessary aspect. We got to get the money from somewhere. We don't need military level level funding. Um, we can be spending that money on the, you know, community solutions that can happen so that, you know, your organization, when you're in those really difficult situations and your last resort, there's more last resorts before that final last resort of getting uh, enforcement and, and uh, force, the police force involved. So I think that's that's really great. I'm glad that was said on the show today when we're talking about criminalization. I think that's a really important piece. We're talking about decolonization, um, dignity, uh, in inclusion work. I think uh, defunding the police isn't necessarily the bad moniker that, that it has. I think it's just a solution that we're trying to talk about and how we spend our money. Um, and that is not a planned sound effect in the background. If you can hear the siren, I live near a fire station. That is the siren you are hearing, I promise. That is how um, good we are. That's how good that. we are. Yeah. We're, <laughs> time that. Right? No, I just live on a busy street um, near a fire station. So, yeah, anyway, I just yeah, really you're, you're appreciate talking about words. Yeah. Systemic change, right? And, and mm -hmm. so... Uh, we have to change the systems. We know if we're going to end homelessness, that's one of the big pieces. So there's so many systems that are broken yeah. and we, not for like all intentions. Sometimes it's just, Hey, we've just been doing it this way for so long. Mm -hmm. um, so it's rethinking that, how we do things, how we can get everyone wants better outcomes. Uh, yeah. And we can do that uh, not only better, but probably more affordably too. Um, mm -hmm. So working towards that. And none of this happens without good research, without good data, right? Yeah. Every time we say, here's a need on the front line, people will say, prove it. How do you know? Mm -hmm. and, and the research that uh, people like Aaron and others do at the Canadian Observatory on Homelessness and mm -hmm. all across the country, people like Nick Falvo, is so important because we can say, here's the proof, yeah. slam it down virtually and share it on our screen. And hopefully those funds appear. Another great guest. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, enjoyed talking with my co-host, Stefania, as always. Thanks for joining. Thanks. See you next week. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. Produced by Cryer Media and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.